Today on The Art Dealer Show, you will hear art dealer and gallery owner Ruth Ann Thorne say, You know, your whole life is just art and selling, art and selling, art and selling. I don't want people like that. If they're that focused, then they're not that well-rounded, and then they can't appeal to people walking through the door. And welcome to The Art Dealer Show, a podcast for and about the people who sell art. My name is Danny Stern, and today on the show we have art dealer and owner of Exclusive Collections Galleries and Publishing, Ruth Ann Thorne. In this first part of a well-deserving two-part conversation with me and Ruth Ann, we're going to jump deep into a couple big topics that I know you've all given some serious thought to yourselves. We're going to ask, Is the emerging generation of millennials an art-buying generation? And if they are, will they be buying art from the boomers and Xers who own the galleries right now? Maybe that big wave of art buying online is going to come after all. It just was waiting for the online generation to get old enough to be the buying age for art. Even if they buy from us, even if they're not just buying online, Can we staff our galleries with the folks from that same generation? I usually say that and a lot, lot more, but quite frankly, that's plenty, and it will take up the majority of the conversation, and like I said, we'll go pretty deep. But in the meanwhile, while you brace yourself for that, how about you help me out, and we uh, take a quick detour around the corner to, uh, yeah, you guessed it, the old art dealer bar, so I can free my brain of some stuff that has been buzzing around since the last time you and I met here. Hey, welcome back to our uh, little booth in the back corner of the old art dealer bar. You know what I love slash hate, or at least impresses me about this business that we're in? It's that we do what we do with very few tools. We have a phone. We have a room that we do it in, maybe an office, a gallery. And of course, we have at least one piece of art that we can sell. But beyond those few basic things, all we have are our wits, our experience, a little bit of knowledge we picked up along the way, and for the most part, sometimes just the will to succeed, to sell that piece of artwork to that one collector. There's other stuff too, but at the end of the day, it's you talking to a collector about a piece of art, and, and, well, and that's it. And the tool you bring, it's It's just you. I was thinking about this just the other night while hanging out with my wife watching a television show. We have a guilty little pleasure watching the show called Naked and Afraid. If you haven't seen it before, let me very quickly describe the show to you. They take a couple would-be survivalists, and then they drop them in a dangerous and inhospitable bit of remote wilderness where everything wants to either poison you or eat you or both. The goal is, in this state, with only one tool or two between them, no clothing, they need to survive for 21 days. Then us, the viewers, just sit back with a bowl of popcorn and watch the desperate insanity begin. So now out there in the wilds, they pretty much are left with nothing but their own wits. The big challenge is to find some food, which they rarely do. And this will go on for days. In many cases, they will go the entirety of the 21 days with no food at all. Usually in those cases, they wind up tapping out and they can't make it. 
But the ones that survive, they don't really find food, but they find a meal. And when I say a meal, I mean like three little minnows or a couple slugs or a piece of fruit or something like that. And often it's, you know, somewhere around day 15. It could even be right around day 17 or 18, right towards the very end. And all during that time, as you can imagine, they're becoming emaciated. They're losing all of their energy. And more importantly, they're losing their will to move forward. But when that meal comes, when they finally get those three little minnows or whatever it is, something spectacular happens. They spark to life. After they have that little meal, it's like they've been to this the all-you-can-eat salad bar followed by a day at the spa. They're happy, and they're awake, and they're jovial, and they're completely energized to now complete the mission, and eventually that's what they do. Often they'll never see another meal again, but somehow with that little tiny bite, it's able to move them forward to the final pickup. Okay, I, I know it's an extreme comparable, but it started to make me think about some of the galleries in our business. Many of them have had a tough year. They went through a real long dry spell in some markets. It made me think about how many of them themselves are going from one little meal with a little marcel after another, an occasional print sale, a tiny original painting for a couple thousand dollars, and how a little $1,500 sale, not nearly enough to pay even one bill, somehow still can nourish them enough to move on to the next week. And I'm not bringing this up as some kind of salute to their strength in the moment of adversity. And, and don't get me wrong either. These, I'm not describing it as overall desperate times in our business. I'm just saying we had a dry run. And this is, this is much more than just a good arc for a television show. This is something much, much deeper. It's something real about us as, as humans. Now hang on tight while I clarify that point. This is going to be the moment, if you know my stories, I'm going to go a little bit crazy deep, and then I'm going to try very, very hard to swim all the way back to the surface and make this kind of make sense in a context that has something to do with a show called The Art Dealer Show. Now, let me explain what I mean about being fundamental to us as the human animal. There isn't an experiment to test the nature of our will, our will as mammals. And I know it as the rat and the bull experiment. And by the way, if you're a bit squeamish, you might want to fast forward a little bit on this one. What they did in this experiment is they would take a bull, one that if you put a rat in it, they could never escape. They then would take a rat in that bull and they would start filling the bull slowly with water, bringing it to the level where the water would just be a little above their nose and mouth if they rested up along the side, forcing them, if they wanted to breathe, to have to scramble up the side of the bull. And then they would measure how long the rat would keep up with that, how much will they have to survive. Eventually, there is a number or a point in time where every rat will give up. They'll just lose the will. And they'll slide down, and we have to assume they would allow themselves to succumb to the inevitable consequence of this. But then they would take the number from that, and they would match it against a new number in a slightly different experiment. They would again fill up the bowl, and they would let the rat scramble as hard as he can, and just as he was given up, just as he would succumb to the circumstances, they would then start to lower the water, just enough where the rat can rest along the side. But as soon as he felt relaxed, they would start raising the water again. And what they found was they can do this almost indefinitely. 
that if you gave the rat every now and then just a little bit of hope that it wasn't an inevitable that that bowl would just be filled with water and he would eventually just drown someday, the rat would basically keep up for as long as he could before he would, you know, succumb to other circumstances. What did they learn from that? Well, they learned something very fundamental to us as mammals, us as humans in particular. Rats in some respects are not all that different, that we do not need a lot. We just need this little bit of hope in any circumstance. Like the people in Naked and Afraid, are you starving out in the middle of the wilderness? You get a little bite of something, there's hope, and you keep on moving forward. It could be said that this very thing is what made us the evolutionary winners. Just as a bit of trivia, this is the very algorithm that they put inside slot machines to keep you sitting at that machine hour after hour. They know exactly where the fatigue point is of the gambler, where you'll give up hope that that machine ever will give you a win. And every now and then, when they know you're going to get to that place, they drop you a few bucks. You win $10. And hope is restored. And you'll sit there for God knows how many hours again until the dawn comes. Okay, I'm going to come back around now, and we're going to try to restore faith that this in some way has something to do with the show called The Art Dealer Show. Here's what I'm really going after. Like with all of these lessons that we can learn, and they are lessons, and these lessons are tools, anything you can learn about the behavior of people, how we operate, what motivates us, what we want, and how we pursue it, those are the actual tools that sit inside the toolbox of any art dealer out there. These are the tools that smart art dealers work with. We don't have to think about them all the time, but collectively, they are what composes our wits. When seemingly we have no other tools than the art in front of us and the gallery we stand in. But what we do is not only just selling art. For many of us, we also own galleries. And that means in many cases, we have art dealers working for us. And if you're a longtime listener of the show, you've noticed that's a real common theme about what really is a challenge for a lot of folks in the art business. It's not just the art, it's not just the collectors and the market and all that. It's directing good art dealers, keeping them, training them, motivating them, exciting them about what we do. And during a drought like the ones that many galleries had gone through earlier in this year, and there will soon be others, droughts are inevitable, one of the biggest things we have to face in many respects, more than the difficulty of paying our bills, is the ability to hang on to our best assets, the people who can sell art, the people who could do the job when the collectors finally do come around. And that is hard. That is hard when they're losing their spirit. But if you remember, it doesn't necessarily mean that a big wave of new sales and activity in your gallery is what's required to keep most people going. Like all people, like all mammals, like that rat in a bull. They need some degree of hope. They need that morsel. They need that few little minnows on the second week of Naked and Afraid. And what does that amount to? Well, if you're working the gallery floor and maybe you just were happy enough to catch the coconut who was buying the couple thousand dollar limited edition or something, no big deal. But it would be just as easy for you to hand that over to an art dealer who's working there on that shift as it would be writing that up yourself. Do it. Give them the deal. It's much better spent with them. 
you have a halfway decent lead in your pocket that you could be calling, maybe you should be handing it to them. Give them something to do. Anything that can keep hope alive. Anything that can give them a reason to believe that tomorrow can be a better day than the last 10. Now, this is not just about directing a crew of art dealers on the floor of your gallery. This also goes for collectors. Maybe during an off-season or whatever the circumstances are, you've noticed that some of your best collectors or some of your artists are starting to go a little bit cold. It's been a long time since they've taken an interest in any particular piece of artwork. Maybe it's because it just doesn't fit with their rhythm. They're on vacation or whatever it happens to be, waiting for a bonus that's not going to come in for a long time. They have their own droughts too. But during that time, you can feed them a little bit of hope as well. You can maybe send them a note from the artist that they collect and love. Just a little thank you, just a little thinking of you. Keeping them engaged. And hey, artists and publishers, there's a little bit of this for you too. Matter of fact, a lot of it for you too. Did you pick up a collector on your own, maybe on Facebook or your website? It might be worth kicking those to the gallery. Remind them that people are still buying your art. Remind them that people are still excited about it, even if they're having a little bit of a dry time. Just remind them that you love them too. You know, galleries. I'm winking right now. And now, some more of me talking about stuff. Did you know that Jeff Koons got his start by being discovered in the 1980s while standing in his booth at Art Expo? You never heard about that before? You're not aware of it? Well, there's a reason for that. It's a lie. It's a, it's a serious, deep, really pathetic lie, but it is somewhat believable if you think about it. At an art fair, specifically the art fairs put on by Redwood Media Group, the very fundamentals that make such a thing possible can all be found. At a show put on by Redwood Media Group, and there's a couple great ones coming up. We have Art Santa Fe, July 13 through 16, and we have Art San Diego further on down in the fall from September 28th to October 1st. In their shows, you have artists, you have art dealers, and most certainly have art collectors. It's the cocktail that makes such a bit of magic take place. Sure, Jeff Koons didn't come up that way. I don't even know if he ever went to an art expo, quite frankly, but he should have. If you want to find out more, go to redwoodmg.com. They have details about all their shows and how you can participate yourself. Did you know at one time... Peter Max was an unknown artist who had to work in Times Square as a Salvador Dali lookalike, posing for photographs with tourists coming to New York. And it wasn't until he did a show that was publicized with the help of Alison Zucker-Perlman and her company Relevant Communications that he exploded and became the famous artist you know him as today. This, of course, is a lie. It's an actually very bad lie and not a very believable one. But one part is very believable, and that is, if he was that person, if he wasn't known, certainly the fine folks at Relevant Communications could have done that job. Relevant Communications is composed by a team of publicist specialists who work specifically 
in the art gallery world. They represent artists, galleries, and publishers, and they have handled some of the biggest shows. If you want to learn more about Allison Zucker Perlman's company, go on over to relevantcommunications.net. There's a lot of information there waiting for you. You should give her a ring to find out what she can do for you. Did I ever tell you about how I got started in this business? After doing a long stretch in Folsom Prison, after a little bank thingy, we don't need to go into the details, I picked up a copy of Art World News. And based upon what I learned just from one copy of Art World News, I was able to go into an interview at a very successful art gallery and land myself an art dealing job that very day. I bluffed my way through. That is actually a lie. I have never done time, at least not that you know about. And I did not use Art World News to help me get my first job in the art business, but I could have. It is plausible. If you look through the pages of Art World News, there is so much there to learn about our business, the people in it, what they do and how they succeed in doing it. Art World News might not have made my career, but if you are doing time right now and you're thinking about becoming an art dealer, pick up a copy. It might help you out. Art World News for everybody in the art business who wants to know what's going on and felons too. My guest today on The Art Dealer Show is art dealer and gallery owner, Ruth Ann Thorne. Ruth Ann learned the business the way that I like anybody to learn the business. She learned it from the ground up. She got an entry-level job at an art gallery in Maui, where she learned how to become an art dealer just by rolling up her sleeves and learning it one lesson at a time. After that, she took it on her own to go off and create her own little business. No, it wasn't a big gallery like it is today. She actually wound up crisscrossing the country in a panel truck, putting up pop-up shows and ballrooms. And in between them, she worked a phone list, trying to encourage the folks she had met along the way to come on down and meet her again at another ballroom. Bit by bit, she built up a foundation of collectors, many of which who have stuck with her to this day. Decades have gone by where some of these people have hung around. And that brought her to where we know her today. Owning exclusive collections, a small chain of galleries that are found in Southern California and in Las Vegas. Now, I've known Ruth Ann for years, but unlike some of the guests on the show, I can't say I've known her all that well. We've spoken a couple times on the phone, we shared a couple emails, and I've certainly heard about her by reputation through the industry. But it wasn't until I went down to her main gallery down in San Diego, California, to have this recorded conversation with her, that I really got to ever really meet her, get to know her. So in a way, you and I are getting to know her at exactly the same time. And while I was down there, or I should say when I first entered into her gallery, what I saw indicated to me I was about to learn about someone who was unlike probably any other art dealer who I've ever met. And I knew this from what I saw going on. There was a card table, a couple of them, set up in the middle of the gallery. And on that card table, there was some kind of arts and crafts project going on with her staff working on it, circling the table. They had a bunch of cut-up magazines and boards and glue, and you kind of get the picture. And I think that's probably a perfect place for us to start our conversation with Ruth Ann. Those are our dream boards. So we do that every year as a company. Yeah. Once a year, we do an inspirational exercise, which we call dream boards, 
basically take a cardboard, you know, sheet, like 18 by 24. And then the exercise is just to clip out whatever you look at in a magazine that um, appeals to you, that you think, wow, I'd like to do that. I'd like to be that. Cut them all up and then create a visual to just kind of look at throughout the entire year to motivate you and to inspire you. And I've looked back at boards. This is probably our fifth year. Lots of things on those boards all of a sudden. Wow, where'd that come from? Oh, that came from a board three years ago. And then all of a sudden I see it in my life. Have you seen any specific transformation of any of the, uh, the dealers? Or you call your people sales you mean, consultants yes, or, or are consultants? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, lots of things. And I think it also... My, I have a um, my philosophy on leading teams, especially on the sales floor, is that it's not enough to just be motivated to be successful in selling something, unless you know why you want to be successful. What does it equal? So I really try to get my people in touch with. Okay, you want to sell, you know, a hundred thousand dollars and make a paycheck this month. What are you going to do with it? Because the motivation doesn't come from the selling, it comes from the whole life motivation. So I want my consultants to understand that they don't go to work and then they start their day after work. Mm -hmm. Their entire life is one life. So whether you're working or playing or doing whatever, it's all one collective life. Yeah, the focus stalled. Yeah. Yeah. So when we do the dream board, it puts us all in contact with the fact that everything that we do is our life, from working to playing to whatever, and every aspect should support each other within that. The first time you introduced it, you know, and you said, okay, here's what we're going to do. What was the immediate response? Did, the, did they get it? Was there any resistance oh, to yeah, it? yeah, people did absolutely it? loved it. And the thing that was probably the most telling for me was it was interesting to see that people's true colors came through on the board. So for instance, I had a gal that, oh, you know, she's, I eventually want to be an art dealer, own my own gallery. And I, but at the end of the day, her board showed that she wanted to be a mother, have children and bake cookies. Uh huh. There was nothing on her board that had anything to do with wanting to excel as a career woman. I didn't say anything, but six months later she was pregnant and, uh, moved to the Midwest um, to raise kids and bake cookies. The first dream board I put down on paper, mm-hmm. when I looked back at it, I realized I clearly wanted to get a divorce. I was very unhappy in my marriage, but when I was doing the dream board, I didn't think that at all. Really? But when I look back, I have letters that say, I am free, single, there's no man on the board. Mm-hmm. Then when I look back, I went, holy shit, there it was. was. only in the looking back. You didn't, mm-hmm. you didn't uh, put nope. the board out an hour later and nope. said, oh my. Not at all. So it was looking back after already having been divorced? About a year later, uh-huh. when I was going through the divorce, I looked back when we start. I looked at my old dream board. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. There it is. It's staring me right in the face how I'm really feeling. But I wasn't willing to accept that at that time. But it came out anyway. <laughs> so you got to be careful with these things because when you tap into that subconscious it's you but it is maybe you that you don't want to get in touch with right now but it's going to come out 
You know, it's funny that you frame it that way. I used to tell my art dealers all the time, my art dealers meaning when I had galleries of my own, and that um, whatever your agenda is, that will come to the surface regardless. Meaning, and I used to say in this context, which is your agenda is to sell a piece of artwork. Your agenda is to share with a prospective uh, you know, collector some bit of information. You know, those things are all in your agenda. You don't have to be anxious about the, when am I going to introduce that? It will surface all on its own because it's there, because it's a part of who you are and what you desire. Just throw it all to the back end as it is. But you're talking about it in a much bigger context. Can they make it their agenda or do you think it's impossible? Uh, I think it's impossible. I think ultimately what the exercise is, I mean, it, I, it's good for me. I mean, I get a, a glimpse into somebody's life, but, you know, ultimately people are who they are. And I, you know, most of my consultants, I do see they're putting goals on their board. They're putting how much money they want to make and those types of things because they are goal-oriented and they do love this business. But they're also putting things that support those goals. So, you know, some of them desire to get married or find a significant other. Some of them want to travel, you know, with their time off. And I think all of that's incredibly healthy. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, myopic in the sense that, oh, you know, you're, you know your whole life is just art and selling, art and selling, art and selling. Uh-huh. I don't want people like that because if that if they're that focused, then they're not that well-rounded, and then they can't appeal to a large population of people walking through the door. They have no life experience. And I think selling art is about connecting with people on a very personal level, I feel. And at least in our galleries, that's our culture. And um, I want to have people that are sincere. You know, I don't really ascribe to the maybe old school methods that people come in and they're a mark. Okay, they're going to come in, you know, did you close them? You know, were you able to, you know, get that credit card? You know, I don't, we don't train that way and we don't feel that way. So our approach is very much, I hire people that actually care about people. They care about art, but they care about people. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people who care about art and selling art, but quite frankly, they don't really care about people. Yeah. They have no, I mean, you know, they'll be nice and they'll put on the fake smile and they're very charming and all that. But at the end of the day, it's insincere. Um, my consultants, they have clients that they've had for 20 years that they're family, they're friends. I mean, I've, I have clients that I've known for literally 30 years that I've seen the death of a spouse, grandchildren born, I've vacationed with them. Um, We know each other intimately because we've lived life together and they've bought, you know, a lot of art from me, but it wasn't just about the art. It was Mm -hmm. about the friendship and the relationship. And that is what I feel makes a great art dealer. In art dealing, I think it's inherently intimate that you're making personal decisions. You're making choices about what it is you really like, much like with your vision boards. People often when they're in a gallery are coming to terms for the first time about their likes and dislikes about things on an aesthetic level and what it represents to them and their own history and really what they desire to have in their own lives. And to be able to carry someone through that experience, you have to be welcomed in at a very close and intimate level. And I think you made a very good point as well on the issue of having life experience. 
you have to be at some point an authority. And it doesn't necessarily mean you have to be an art expert, but you have to at least be enough of an authority to have that conversation about what it is that people like and dislike and helping them find that path versus just a facilitator. I agree. So how hard is it to find people like that? It's, it's, um, it's a challenge. Well, first of all, we have fewer and fewer younger people coming into our industry. And their work ethic is a little bit different than probably some of us who are baby boomers or, you know, fall in that category. Um, but it's not impossible. I mean, it's challenging, but it's not impossible. I've been really fortunate to have some pretty amazing people work with me, and I have an incredible team right now. So, Why do you think it is unless uh, young people are coming into the business? I think there's not a lot of avenues, first of all. You know, it's you can't really go to art dealer school. You know, you can go get it maybe a... You can get an internship with Sotheby's, I think, or Christie's, and I think they have academies that'll teach you how to catalog. Right. But I think there's not a lot of entry points. So a lot of people, too, they don't like the idea of working for a commission. That's another thing. You know, the younger generation, if they're educated, they're looking at getting out of college to pay those loans down with a guarantee. And when you come into the art arena, you're, you're working for yourself, basically. The gallery is just an umbrella in which you conduct your own business if you want to be successful. Mm -hmm. So you really need to be able to find people who have an entrepreneurial spirit. So I think the world is changing. I think internet has um, really changed the way that we interact with collectors and the way we do commerce. So... You know, when the internet first came out, it wasn't really that big of a factor for us as art dealers because that intimate relationship that was built within a gallery, we did not feel in any way that would change. And it didn't. And, as a matter of fact, a lot of us thought it was going to be a bonanza. Yeah. You know, it, it's a it, visual medium and uh, we, we want to show the art that we have in our galleries. And as soon as people see it all over the world, what we have here will come running. That was not a factor for me. I mean, I always felt that people would only make an acquisition if they were in front of the art. Mm -hmm. They might look at something online, but they were not really going to pony up for $10,000 without actually seeing it in person and also having, you know, the whole wine and dine experience. And I feel that to a certain degree that has been true, but that's shifting now. And we have a whole new generation of buyers that they don't have any problem pulling the trigger on an expensive piece if they have the money. And so we're up against that. The other thing is... With well, it the, seems like we're kind of getting go, the worst yeah, of both worlds, right? Where I don't think it's gone away that it ha people need the personal experience. As a matter of fact, I have not seen any examples of online art dealing, at least in any volume, where um, it's worked all, all on its own, where someone can experience it online, get excited about it, and spend a significant amount of money. On the other hand, they're demanding that, but the person who provides it, the gallery, the art dealer who provides it, isn't necessarily the, the gallery that's rewarded. Sure. Because then after all of that, then it comes down to dollars and cents. You so know? you feel that everyone that makes a purchase has seen it somewhere in person? I think the bulk, yeah. And maybe even not the individual piece, but at least was introduced to the artist at some point. 
And I would agree with that. I would completely agree with that, but I don't think that's going to remain the fact the situation for very much longer. I think that things are going to shift dramatically in the next 10 years. Do so you think when you get with, to the point where someone can go online, hear oh, about absolutely. an artist, see it, and then just wait till it shows up at their house? Yep. And I think that's coming right around the corner. Why do you think that's going to change? Well, it's already changing in retail. Um, that's why you see all these malls shutting down. That's because true. Zappos comes to my house. Well, All the time. I just spent $200 on Amazon for my daughter's summer wardrobe because mm-hmm. she's growing like a weed and I need to get her summer clothes. And so, you know, it's a hassle. I got to go to the mall. I've got to try on a bunch of things. I got to take the time. We got to go to five different stores because you don't always find the sizes. And, you know, it's pretty simple. I go on Amazon. I know the brands. I show her, you like this pattern. You like this print. I know her size. And the beauty is, is if I comes in, ships for free. I don't like it. I put it in the bag. They pick it up. And uh, with art, you know, and there's a utility to that clothing. She needs to go back sure. to school, and she has to buy clothes. Art has always been incredibly discretionary. Uh, it's the, I used to joke, particularly uh, when we hit the recession in 2008. I said, "Art is the easiest thing not to buy." You know, and I used to say that, and I and that came after me observing it in my own life when my wife and I would see things we might want to buy and that would always be my comment. Like, that is a really easy thing for me not to purchase. <laughs> well, and I agree and I, I understand what you're saying and I'm in complete agreement with it today. What I think will happen is people will be cracking a bottle of wine at 11 o'clock at night in their beautiful new home that they bought, two busy executive millennials, and they'll look at a painting They'll watch the YouTube video of the artist painting it. They'll look at it. They'll look at the colors. They'll look at his, you know, whatever his vision is. It'll be $10,000. They'll take the measurements and they'll say, honey, what do you think? I really love it. Well, what happens if it doesn't work out? Well, look, it's free shipping in, free shipping out. Reputable gallery. You know, we can have it here this weekend. We got a dinner party. Sure, let's do it. They push the button, PayPal. Boom, end of story. Everybody loves it. Or it wasn't what I thought it was. They put it back in the box. They call UPS. They pick it up and they get a refund. No problem. Hey, I'm sorry to interrupt. We'll get back to our conversation with Alex in just a second. But I wanted to point something out. You're about halfway through this episode. And it means one of two things. Either one, you have fallen asleep and it's just played on and on and on and on, whether you liked it or not. The other one is, you kind of like the show. And if you do like this show, well, maybe you can help out a little bit. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to ask for money, but there are a couple things you can do to help me. First of all, you can subscribe over at iTunes. Secondly, you can review us. But most importantly, you can share the word about the show. Do you have a friend in the business who hasn't heard the show yet? Let them know about it. Have one of them fancy Facebook pages? Put a little blurb out. Let them know what you're listening to. Okay. Now back to the show. And for those of you who fell asleep, The Art Dealer Show is the best podcast you ever listened to. I must tell all my friends about The Art Dealer Show. I don't know. I don't know what keeps on feeling it. And the reason I have a problem with it is, has any? how often is it that someone walks into your gallery who tells you at the point that they're giving you their credit card... You know, when we got up in our uh, bed at the hotel uh, this morning, we looked at each other and said, let's go out and find a painting of a cowboy. 
Well, I always say next I'm looking at a painting. You'd be surprised. I had a woman come in the other day. She had very affluent. She wanted a painting of a matador. Uh-huh. And um, so she went online and she looked at a whole bunch of paintings of matadors. She ended up finding an artist in Spain that had this incredible painting of a matador. She absolutely fell in love with it. Didn't know who the artist was. I said, you know, I'm thinking, well, it's probably, you know, probably $900, $12,000. She was thrilled with it. And she's got her painting of her matador. Not everyone, but there is a large majority of people who are in the process of doing their home. And they're like, my gosh, an incredible abstract would look great on that wall. What do you think, honey? Yeah, let's start looking for one. Well, let's look for one right now. But now aren't we turning the art into a utility? Well, it's both. And then aren't we kind of in a trap when, you know, I can come up like most people with there are three or four basic parts of my house where we definitely should have a piece of artwork there. Mm-hmm. But as you know, like I do, we make our livings not off of that. Right. We make our livings off of the collectors saying, I guess I need to buy a bigger house or mm-hmm. I'm, I need to start finding corners in my house that I didn't think needed a piece of artwork before because I want to own another painting by this artist I and agree. I just can't refuse. Well, and I, I'm not saying that I think that the art business is going to change where nobody is going to come into a gallery. I'm not saying that at all. There's going to be a very large group of people who want to continue to collect art, come to art shows, meet the artists, all of those types of things. But we get a very large group of people that want to buy beautiful art to decorate their homes. And what I'm saying is, is that We need both to survive. And so when we start having this new millennials coming around the corner that are not opposed to buying without walking into a brick-and-mortar place, there's going to be a big effect on retail. And it already is starting. And so this is the reason why you're seeing a lot of, you know, like Banana Republic scale down 80% of their stores. Why? Because they're not getting the sales that's going online. Mm-hmm. I'm not gloom and doom. I'm not feeling like, oh my gosh, you know, the sky is falling. But what I am looking at is how are we going to reinvent ourselves? And I don't know the answer yet to um, attract those people who are the millennials that would buy online to get them to come into the store. Or maybe we're the venue that they're buying online from. Maybe Mm -hmm. we make it easier, you know, and we put in shopping carts. So if you know in our industry, like it's super taboo, nobody has a shopping cart. Nobody, you can't list prices. You can't do any of that with our, you know, because we have very exclusive artwork. I think lots of galleries did in the beginning. And And they got shut down. (laughs) Well, yeah. Well, for one thing, if they were buying from distributors or publishers, agents. I shut them down. Why do I need another website out there? I need people actually selling. Right. But the other is, I don't think they had much experience of anybody actually using it. It was kind of anecdotal. So they gave up after a point. It was like, why invest in that? You know, if it's not going to work. It's true. I mean, I have clients that call me as the owner and say, why don't you have a way I can order online? You guys make it so difficult. My first thought, if I was the art dealer getting that phone call, would be because 
you'd probably buy something a little less expensive than you could be buying. Um, that I know you just needed somebody to sort of encourage you a little bit to buy the companion piece, but you were going to kind of control it at some level and do the thing that someone would do if they were left by themselves. They would try to, you know, take the conservative move. And, sure. and, and, not, and I'm not saying this just for the same reason, the obvious reasons that I, as the art dealer, want to make more money or make more sales, but even for the collector side of it, I mean, you know this as well as I do, you do get the chance every now and then to be your friend and, you know, and, and lay it out. Go, sure. look, you love that. This is going to become unavailable, and we're talking about something you're going to have the rest of your life. We're taking out the advocate to them, too, not just no, for and ourselves. I, and, I, and I, you know what? You're preaching to the choir. Everything that you say, mm -hmm. I'm in total agreement with. The only problem but, is, but our is that ways of seeing it's not going to save our business. Well, you know, there were plenty of people that said, God, everybody's been used to the horse. Why would anybody want to jump into one of those mechanical things? I mean, the horses are not going away, folks. Not to worry. It's not going to happen. I mean, that all that modern equipment, you know, who knows where that's going to go. But I can tell you this at the end of the day, people love their relationships with their horses. But so what happens to the whole ecosystem of this? We then? have to re we as art dealers are going to have to rethink some things in order to and I'm not saying we have to change everything, but we are definitely going to have to rethink the way the world has changed. We cannot deny the technology that's come down the pike and that's not just with the ability for buyers to buy, but that's also with the ability for artists to print on demand. Back in the day, you know, it took a publisher, if you wanted to publish one edition, it was about 30 grand minimum to throw down on the barrel head to print that one print. So you as an art dealer, you better have picked a home run, not only in the artist, but also in that image. Otherwise, you're going to be stuck with a lot of Christmas gifts down the road. Right. But then, you know, advent of... Um, Hello, cruise ships. Yeah, thank you. You know, um, you know, now with the advent of on-demand, shoot, an artist can, you know, not be that great as an artist, and they can print one of 28 of their images and take it to a festival, sell that one, and order another one the next day. They have no skin in the game. So that changed who was out in the market doing limited editions. Mm -hmm. That was technology that changed that. Or if you want to buy from an artist in France, you can Skype with them for free. Mm -hmm. watch them in their studio. Well, I think you did touch upon one interesting point, okay. but you, you hit on the accessibility of the artist. Mm -hmm. And that has historically been a main function of the gallery. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time where if you were first introduced by, to an artist by a gallery and some serendipitous, ex, you know, experience that you had of being on vacation and wandering into a gallery like yours, that became pretty much your sole access to that artist. You could not, you didn't have the web, so you right. didn't know how to get in contact with the artist. You, you would basically need every phone directory in the country if the artist was listed. You certainly couldn't find another gallery selling that artist even. Phone books, I forgot about those. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> we're old. You, they were cut off. And now you're talking about something very interesting, which is not only... Can you find those artists and find other galleries showing them and make a direct connection with them and have a phone call with them? I think the other layer of that is because that's been going on for so long, and I'm seeing this with my own artists 
quite frequently, with the younger generation coming into the age of buying art, they have an expectation of it. Mm-hmm. Not just an access to it, and it's it's something that's a good service to them. They're not clear on why it is they can't talk to the artist when they want to talk to the artist. Why can't I just go to their studio? That's kind of how the world works. Mm-hmm. Everything is accessible. Um, and I and I don't know the answers. I mean, one of the things that I'm throwing this out here on this podcast is I would love to hear maybe some other art dealers' ideas on, quite frankly, how we are going to evolve. You know, I hate to say it, but there's been plenty of in- industries that have become completely obsolete. How about and video rental stores? How, what about film? Mm-hmm. What about all of the developing um, you know, companies that developed film and we don't have film anymore anywhere. The point that I'm making is not that I'm gloom and doom. I mean, I plan on staying in this industry for the rest of my life and hopefully it's a long one. But I also am smart enough to see the writing on the wall. Well, let me challenge you on that a okay. minute though. Okay. I get you're not gloom and doom. And, and I'll tell you, I know you've only listened to a, a few of the episodes of the podcast, but it's a lot of what comes up really? in the podcast episodes. Okay. Oh, of course. We're all, everybody's trying to figure it out all the time. We all know it's changing. We all have different ideas. How We all know it's wrong. We just have different <laughs> ideas why and where it's going. And uh, mostly it's very individualized. Okay. You know, it's, it's art dealers saying, well, here's where I see it going for me, which is I think it's going to come down to I'm going to be selling to 10 very wealthy people. Ah, okay. And that's their whole model. I like you know, that. They're just, I, I've got a couple crazy wealthy people and I've connected with them and I'm just going to sell them as much art as I can sell them and I can no longer make a living selling to the masses because it doesn't work that way. That's just one version okay. of it. But very few of them have a vision of, oh, here's what the whole business is going to become like. Well, and here's what an art dealer is going to be. No one seems to have that in focus. But the question I, I, I feel like I most likely have to ask you is, Let's say eventually that answer surfaces. And I think it's not going to come because we necessarily we figure it out. It's just going to come. Right. And what it is to be an art dealer means opening up a little warehouse space. And it's you and a couple computer people. And, a dog. Uh, right. And, and, and it's basically just building web pages and social media and, uh, you know, just pumping it out there and worrying more about what percentage Visa is giving you and it, are the servers up than it does anything to do with anything you've done previously. Has vision boards start to mean nothing because you don't have art dealers. So right. it really becomes irrelevant. You know, getting to hang a gallery and make you know, specific choices about how you present and what you present, that all goes away. Are you on boards because this is just the industry you picked? Or is there a point where you just go, look, I got into one business. It's now an art, another business. The only thing it has in common with what the business was when I started was we're selling art. That's but everything I, else is gone. That's when I get a gun and load it and put it right to my head. Really? Mm-hmm. So basically... No, I'm joking. Um, but does it feel like I'd rather um, be dead than have to refigure this out? No. I'm excited about figuring it out. Okay. I find it to be a huge challenge. And my my goal is, is that I'm going to figure out a way of appealing to the millennials. I am so excited about this new generation coming around the corner. What do you and like about them? There's a lot of them. That's the first thing I like. 
And I think about, you know, what I what I liked about starting in this business was I was selling to the baby boomers and there was a lot of them. Uh-huh. And so that was good. That was a really good thing because there's a whole lot of people buying and um, I enjoyed selling. And so with the millennials, there's a whole lot of them coming around the corner. I mean, that we're already we're already selling to them. Also love the fact that the millennials are very much about authenticity. If there was a word that described the millennials, it was be authentic. So they are not about appealing to the sensibility of anybody but themselves. They're incredibly selfish people. They grew up in a culture where the world revolved around them. They didn't have to really work that hard to get information. As you're talking about them, though, all I keep on thinking about is the reason why they're very concerned with authenticity is because they also are very comfortable with things being entirely virtual or ephemeral. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, more and more they talk about in the auto industry that millennials are not particularly concerned about buying a car. They're comfortable with not owning one and taking Uber or Lyft or whatever mm-hmm. the services are, or even an automated vehicle, let alone another you know driver coming and getting them. They're comfortable with not owning an album. You know, they don't buy CDs or a record vinyl or anything like that, unless they're that few that get really invested in the vinyl. They have Pandora. But the, but the rest of them, there's no ownership at all. They don't even buy downloadable, right, Pandora. There's not even a download anymore. There's an odd dichotomy that we're dealing with with that generation. And where is art going to fall and is it going to be enough? Meaning, will there probably be a group that will be like the vinyl collectors in there? Like, I have to have a real Salvador Dali, you know, a, a real something. But will that be enough to support an entire industry? Or does that become, you know, very neat in cottage? We're going to find out. But I think, and then with all of these challenges that we're talking about, the beauty is, is that when you go through a shift, it means that there's only a few ships left in the harbor. And I'm grateful that we're one of them. We are fighting hard to stay afloat. You know, it has not been easy for us. So it's going to, the beauty is, is that there'll be fewer people in the game as far as I'm concerned, but it'll make us have to really get sharp. I, I hear what you're saying. It makes me nervous though, when there's less of us and not more of us. And it's not just because I sell the galleries. But it's... I sell to galleries, too. That's true. You're in the same boat as I am. (laughs) It's also because the volume seems to justify the industry. It's like we were saying before we actually started recording that as an individual, as a potential collector, if I'm seeing galleries all over the world, collecting art seems like a normal thing that people do. If I don't see galleries everywhere, and this is a rare occurrence that one crosses my path and I wander into it, that anomaly seems to work against us. I agree with that. that. We become more of a show. It's like if I wandered into an old-timey creamery, you know, I would be more fascinated with the fact that it's an artifact of history than it's, hey, I need some cream. You know, it's, it's, I don't, I won't see it as a transactional You make a good point there. And um, it's not that I'm glad that galleries are going out. It's not that, and maybe I needed to restate that. Maybe just embracing what benefits there are. No, it's not that I'm glad that galleries are going out. I'm just glad that we're still here. (laughs) Okay, that that I entirely think. 
hey, I'm sorry to stop you there. But this was one of those conversations that was just too good to not break up into two parts. Later, we'll get back to uh, the rest of our conversation in an episode or two. And in that second part, I promise you, it's going to be completely different. You're going to get to really learn about Ruth Ann herself. There's some incredible stories about, well, the very unique and not so easy path that she sometimes took on her way to becoming the art dealer we know her as today. And I'm not going to tell you anymore because I don't want to ruin it. But just for this half alone, I want to make sure to give a big thank you to Ruth Ann. She was really generous with her time, and I had a fantastic time getting to meet her. Ruth Ann, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. And since I'm handing out the thank yous, I want to also sincerely thank the listeners who have continued to review us up on iTunes. Also, those who have, uh, more importantly, subscribed to the podcast, like Tiffany from C. Parker Gallery in Greenwich, Connecticut, who just opened up a brand new gallery, by the way. Uh, I also want to thank, from what I've been told, her family who have to suffer along and listen to my podcast as they go for long road trips. You guys are the real heroes in my book. And I also want to thank some of the folks out there who have helped in perhaps the biggest way to help me out which is to pass the word along to other folks in our industry about this show. One in particular I want to call out is Ryan James of Ryan James Fine Art in Kirkland, Washington. He sent out a tweet to all the folks that follow him. I like to think a lot of them are in the art business. And in it, he wrote to his followers, quote, Just discovered at Art Dealer Show, hashtag podcast, a must subscribe for any hashtag art dealer. Looking forward to catching up on past shows. Hashtag binge mode. Well, Ryan, hashtag thank you very much. So, until next time, may all the coconuts fall at your feet. Good night, my art dealers. Good night. This has been The Art Dealer Show. You can find us on the web at artdealer.show. You can also find us at all the big social media hangouts at the handle, you guessed it, Art Dealer Show.